every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Adam Blitzer, Executive Vice President and General Manager of Digital at Salesforce. Adam is truly one of the godfathers of marketing automation and B2B demand generation, having founded and sold Pardot, one of the most important marketing automation platforms ever created. Adam currently oversees the multi-billion dollar marketing division at Salesforce, using the products he created to meet internal demand gen goals. On this episode, Adam discusses the evolution of demand gen, how the tools and technologies for marketing automation have changed, why the fundamental challenges for marketers remain the same, what he believes is MarTech's battleground of the future, and the software products he's building to create the single source of truth for enterprise marketers. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Adam Blitzer, Executive Vice President and General Manager of Digital at Salesforce, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. And I am joined by very special guest, Adam, how are you? I'm doing well. Great to be with you, Ian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you on the show. We are thrilled to have you on. One of the, uh, as we say, as we like to say, one of the godfathers of marketing automation. Uh, And so this episode is going to be a little different. We're going to get deep into what is going on, both with Salesforce and the broader marketing community as a whole. You have a new role that's super exciting that we're going to talk about. So let's get into it. Tell us a little bit about this new role as GM of digital. Well, you know, let me start with sort of that old role that you first mentioned. It's uh, it's always fun being called one of the godfathers of marketing automation. There's one of my colleagues at Salesforce who loves to call me the great grandfather of marketing automation. So I, uh, some people age like some people age like fine wine. I have aged like milk. <laughs> um, but when I think about my current role, you know, I, I spent many, many years squarely on the B2B side of the business, you know, both from my own marketing automation background with Pardot to working on the sales cloud, all things sort of sales and B2B marketing at Salesforce. Um, but starting about a year ago, I moved on to the digital side of the business. And we've really put together all the products that a chief digital officer cares about. So that's our marketing cloud, our commerce cloud, and our digital experience cloud. And so this is really not B2C or B2B. It's really just all digital experiences under one umbrella. And that's been a lot of fun, focusing on our customer's customer and creating just amazing consumer-grade experiences. Yeah, I mean, it speaks volumes to where the market is going, where the industry is going, you know, Salesforce, obviously, pioneering uh, a a lot of things like, you know, this customer success function as, you know, telling customer stories in a different way, you know, creating experiences in a different way. And obviously, pushing into digital experience, this is something that, you know, we'll get into a little later about, you know, how COVID has accelerated that. But this idea of 
of this digital experience and having a digital first experience, it feels like the new normal for every single marketer, every single leader to try to figure out like, how do your customers have a seamless and amazing digital experience? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think pressure has been put on digital leaders, you know, around the world for years because we all carry around a supercomputer with us every day, right? It's our iPhone, it's our Android device. And it just lends itself to amazing connected experiences that you can have. Um, and what's really interesting to me is that the best experience you now have with any brand is the new floor for what you expect. So, you know, let's say I buy a product from Apple and, you know, I go through it, I check out with Apple Pay and I have the option to courier it over to my house that day, right, for an additional small charge. I now expect to have that same level of experience with literally any retailer, right? That might be unreasonable, right? But that's that's the expectation that's now been set by that great experience. What's also interesting is that transcends industries. So if you think about the experience that most of us had the first time we used Uber or Lyft, where it just worked for us, right? We knew where the car was. We knew it was coming. We knew who we were getting paired up with. And consciously or subconsciously, all of us thought, why can't you know, all of my digital experiences be just like that. So this idea that, you know, the best digital experience you have with a company is now your floor. That's now your bar for what you expect from any company. That puts pressure on businesses in a whole new way. It's really interesting. Yeah. And it puts pressure on folks within the C-suite that are all involved in this thing. So I'm so curious, like, Obviously, you've worked with marketers your whole career. You continue to work with marketers. You talked about the chief digital officer. Like, what is this role? Like, it, where does the CIO blend into the CMO? Where does, you know, chief digital fit? Yeah. So, you know, almost what, what you're touching on, um, you know, reminds me of the fact that almost no one owned customer experience at most companies until very, very recently. Right. If you think about what is one of the most important things you could do as a brand, it's create, you know, an incredible customer experience. And yet there was no one that owned it. There's no one whose job job description was creating an incredible customer experience. That customer experience lived in different pockets throughout the company. The CMO might own a piece of it, right? How do you show up through your marketing? A chief digital officer perhaps, you know, might own the web experience, they might own the e-commerce experience. Someone running the call center or service might own that service experience. The sales team is responsible for another part of customer experience. And there's no one that's sort of looking at that end-to-end -end journey and thinking about how the business shows up to that end customer. And in the absence of this, I think increasingly over the past couple of years, uh, that has really been consolidated under the CMO. It's been part of the CMO's mandate and potentially also the CDO or chief digital officer. Um, but sort of in this absence of any one formal role thinking about it, you know, really marketing has stepped up and said, you know what, we're the steward of the brand. We are now also the steward of the end-to-end -end customer experience, even if it's, you know, sort of flowing through a part of the company that we don't own directly, service, sales, et cetera. It all still is, is a reflection of the brand. It's a reflection of marketing. Well, and I think that part of that is because marketing has changed so fundamentally with like it's not about just drop like marketing acquisition, dropping in new logos, and then okay, on to the next, right? Like 
that 360 degree look at a customer, that ongoing journey, the idea of a customer journey that doesn't just, you know, begin and then have an end point that you market through the journey, you market post acquisition, you're continuing to evolve your messaging as they go. You want them to get more and more value out of the product. You want them to be a champion. I mean, like, it makes sense that the CMO would be able to oversee that, that somebody has to own like the different pieces of that journey. But the thing is like the second that one of those things breaks, you have a horribly inefficient reminder of how bad the CX is. As soon as you get the sales email that says, hey, you should buy blank and you already own blank, you're like, this is broken. What the heck? Absolutely. Or similarly, you know, if your sales rep calls you up and you've had a support issue going on for two weeks and they don't know about it, that's similarly broken, right? And so all of the different aspects of your business need to be in lockstep. Because as you said, if, if any one part of it breaks, the whole thing sort of collapses, right? The whole idea of a seamless customer experience collapses. And you're right, you know, marketing's purview this day, these days is much broader, I think, than it used to be. You know, even in B2B, I think when I got started in 2007 in, in B2B marketing automation, you know, it was very much about feeding the funnel and kind of moving leads through this conveyor belt and, you know, leads to opportunities to closed one deals. And now it's much more about kind of this whole life cycle of the customer and customer lifecycle marketing. And it's turning, you know, your clicks into leads, your leads into pipeline, your pipeline into customers, and your customers almost most importantly into raving fans, right? And, and how do you establish deeper and deeper relationships with your customers over time? And marketing has a hand in all of that, presumably in a way that they didn't, you know, maybe 10 years ago and certainly not 20 years ago. Let's get into our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree with, in the nest, are we not? This is where you can go to feel honest and trusted, and you can share those deepest, darkest demand gen and marketing secrets. When I interviewed you about a year and a half ago, you mentioned that B2B marketers have two customers, your end customer and your sales team. I'm curious, like as you came into this role, did you have some advice for your marketing leaders, for your demand gen leaders uh, of how to view this kind of B2B sales marketing alignment? Yeah, I think, you know, I think that was my exact advice is don't forget about your other customer, right? It's very easy as a marketer to focus on the end customer and to not focus on the other very important customer, which is your sales team. Because at the end of the day, if marketing blows out its numbers, right, they hit all of their target metrics and sales misses their target metric, how many people at the company are happy, right? No one is happy. No one's getting their bonuses. At a B2B company, you know, pipeline and sales is where the rubber meets the road. And so as much as possible, marketing needs to be joined at the hip. The more that they can share those two goals, the better. But I find that at most companies, marketing is still operating a little bit too much in a silo. And they're not thinking of, you know, their sales team as as important of a customer as the end customer, right? Sales is marketing's most important marketing channel at most B2B companies. It certainly is at ours when I think about Salesforce. Yeah, I mean, you know, we always hear about the, uh, you know, last day of the quarter. It's like if marketing's not in the office on last day of the quarter, sales is going to be pissed, right? Like if, you, if, you're, if you're at happy hour and uh, sales is, is pounding the phones at five o'clock, like, 
automatically like you're going to have problems. You, uh, yeah, you should be in the trenches together. Um, I think if nothing else, I mean, marketing should develop deep, deep empathy for sales, right? Sales is an incredibly stressful job. It is one of the few jobs, which is truly, what have you done for me lately? Right. Everything starts at zero when that next quarter starts. Everything starts at zero when that next fiscal year starts in a way that few jobs see. And, you know, as much as marketing can kind of share in the success and share in the struggles with sales, the better. The more they do that, the more they'll be trusted by sales, right? The more of a feedback loop they'll have, the more of a partner in sort of defining, you know, what is their sort of ideal customer profile? What does a sales qualified lead look like? They won't be designing it in a vacuum. I think best in class companies are there. Many companies are still not there. So you've been designing software for marketers and listening to marketers for a long, long time, right? So, you know, I'm curious when you founded Pardot, like what were the conversations like back then as you were talking to marketing leaders for like why they needed something like that? And then, and then next we'll get into how that conversation has changed. Yeah, what, what's interesting is how little has changed. Um, and what's funny is when I, when I made this move to digital, um, you know, I got a note from Joe Payne, uh, who was the CEO at Eloqua for a long time, another player in, in B2B marketing automation. And he sent me a note to the effect of new decade, same problems, or new technology, same problems. And he's exactly right. You know, when you think about the challenges that marketers have or the things they're trying to solve, they're really trying to do four things. They're trying to know their customers. They're trying to personalize the interactions they have with those customers. They're trying to engage them across every channel, basically wherever those customers are. And then they're trying to measure. So basically make everything better, right? And rinse and repeat. And you know, I'm sure that's been the case for the past century. It's just the tools have changed, right? Things were very basic when all you could do was print advertising and then eventually some radio and TV, you get Nielsen involved and you can finally do a little bit of measurement. You know, the whole world of sort of, um, you know, direct marketing kind of grew up around prints and you could finally get a little bit scientific about things. And then, you know, once you hit sort of the world of digital and everything becomes measurable and trackable to a degree, you know, that, that whole idea of getting scientific about knowing, personalizing, engaging, and measuring just expanded incredibly rapidly. And so uh, in the heyday of marketing automation, kind of around 2010 or so, that was exactly the conversation. We need to know what our customers are doing. So essentially, we need to track and not track our customers at sort of this aggregate web analytics level, but track one-to-one and understand, you know, what are their key behaviors? And then how do we kind of separate the wheat from the chaff of, uh, you know, understanding what behaviors lead to what outcomes, you know, the best outcome being real sales interest pipeline, and then ultimately sales, you know, personalization. So using all of that behavior that you're tracking now to better personalize the engagements that you're having with your customers. The channels back then are, that's probably what has changed the most now is the channels have started to change. You know, email was dominant. Email still continues to be, you know, essentially the best channel from an ROI standpoint. It's still the workhorse of digital marketing, but it isn't the only game in town, right? Channels have really proliferated, you know, over the past decade in particular. So that is a big change. And then on that last piece, I would say measurement has also changed. It's gotten just much, much easier 
to measure you know, these cross-channel journeys and these multi-touch journeys that your customers are having with you. But fundamentally, the problems that marketers are trying to solve are exactly the same as they were you know, 10 years ago, I'm sure 20 years ago and before. Well, you know, this, this idea of marketing automation, and obviously, you know, you were one of the people instrumental in bringing out this term, even marketing automation, the implication now that it's like, you just automate it. And then what, right? Like, there's like a what after that now that I think is kind of always been there, but we didn't necessarily have the levels of sophistication yet to be able to do that. Obviously, with you know, tools like Salesforce, you can do so, I mean, the levels of complexity that you can add into these automations and, and all this is really astonishing. I mean, like, you know, kind of looking at it now, if you kind of told your old self, like, just, you know, just wait till what Pardot looks like, you know, in a decade, do you kind of look at that stuff and just like, kind of can't believe like how, how complex it is now? Uh, and then kind of, almost feel bad for your, your marketing peers where you're like, this is a, this is a weighty responsibility. Like we gave you these tools, but there's so many things that you can do. It's a little bit of paralysis by analysis. Yeah. You know, as you add more and more functionality to all of these solutions, whether it's in marketing and sales, you sort of open up, you know, the decision tree just gets more and more complicated for what a marketer could potentially implement, what they could potentially take on. Um, now that being said, the um, the whole discipline of digital marketing has really grown up. You know, it it went from being sort of this cottage industry to being an incredibly in demand profession. And so I think the talent available in the marketplace grew up with the technology. Um, and so what you typically see now is most companies who maybe you know they had no one doing demand generation, they had no one doing real B2B digital marketing. You saw it on the B2C side, but really on the B2B side, it was still pretty nascent. These companies were sales-driven, now have very, very professional demand generation teams. The phrase demand gen has probably fallen out of favor a little bit. And you know, you might hear it as growth. You know, the, the name kind of changes, it's the same thing, but the level of skill, knowledge, professionalism is much higher. And also the level of resourcing that you see to be able to attack these gnarly problems with that you know, expansion in technology, it leads to new possibilities, but also new challenges to tackle. Yeah, we had, so we had Chandar on this show a little bit ago, and he was the first thing. He's like, you should change the name of the show. It shouldn't be demand gen visionaries. It should be growth visionaries. And, uh, and I think that that speaks to, and that's, you know, part of the reason why we created this series is to bring on CMOs that got to where they are by being great at demand gen, you know, and that's kind of like one of the premises of, of this is like, Hey, if you're the best brand marketer and the worst demand gen marketer, you're fired. <laughs> if you're the best demand gen marketer and the worst brand marketer, uh, sales is probably loving you. So, you know, and, and not that those things are, are at odds with one another. It's just kind of, that's like the prevailing kind of mindset. So you know, I'm curious, uh, you know, Salesforce recently released the state of marketing report, which for our listeners, if you haven't checked it out, go check it out. It's full of just amazingly interesting facts and, and anecdotes and, and sort of things. And one of the most critical parts of this is data. I mean, there's a growing chasm between the top marketers who leverage data and the ones who don't. Like it's, it's pretty cut and dry that if you as a marketer feel a little fuzzy about, you know, how data fits into your organization, like that's a bad thing and you got to kind of fix that. So 
I'm just curious, like, you know, as you see, obviously you get first crack at these things, as you see that state of marketing report, and as someone who's worked with marketers for a long time, what does that mean to you? What do you, what do you think that marketers can do to improve their understanding and use of data? Well, you know, I think uh, that was bound to become the number one problem in marketing. So, you know, with the ability to track and to sort of measure like never before, you see a proliferation in the amount of data that marketers have available. Now, that would be true even with a single channel. But now, you know, you think about the number of channels that a marketer has to deal with. And just if you look at that famous infographic by Scott Brinker, the MarTech 5000, when I started Pardot with David Cummings in 2007, there were 150 logos on that slide. And today there are 8,000. So in 13 years, it's gone from 150 to 8,000. And what it means is as marketers, we can never predict you know, the next channel that's going to become important. We can never predict what cottage industries will spring up. The only thing we can predict is that it's going to continue to happen, right? It's going to continue to proliferate. And so what that means is there's this explosion in data sets out there. And historically, there's never been a single source of truth for marketing. The truth has sort of always lived a little bit in each of these different solutions. And so what do I mean by a single source of truth? You know, that's basically one place to sort of have a golden record for your customer. And there's been a single source of truth in many other areas, right? There's a single source of truth in sales, right? That's Salesforce. You know, our customers often use the phrase, if it's not in Salesforce, it didn't happen. You know, there's a single source of truth in HR, right? Many companies use Workday. That's sort of their master record. Lots of other things might hang off of that, but that's the single source of truth. Atlassian might be the, you know, Jira might be the single source of truth for software development and things sort of hang off of it. Marketing has never had that with like an anchor tenant application. It's, you know, it's always been sort of about the individual channels and it makes it really, really difficult to create a cohesive customer journey that's really multi-channel, really personalized, you know, because everything sort of lives at the fringes, a little bit lives in each individual piece your customer might see one offer you know, when they're on their mobile, they might see another offer when they're in your, your app, another when they're on their website. And it's just because all these different solutions are using slightly different algorithms, they're using slightly different pieces of the data, no one of them has a complete picture of you. So when I look at that trend, it tells me that we're on the right track with our efforts around building a single source of truth for marketers. You might hear you know, this referred to as a CDP, a customer data platform, our flavor of that is customer 360 audiences, but we really believe that the customer data platform is the battleground in marketing for the next five years, right? With this proliferation of MarTech and the average marketer using 10 to 20 different pieces of MarTech in their stack, you have got to be at the center of it, right? If you think about chess, like the strategy typically is controlling the center of the board, the way you can do that in this world where MarTech has become so diffuse is you can control the data, you can control the workflow, you can control the content, or you can control the analytics or all four of those. And we think the most foundational of those four pieces is data. And that's really what we want to help our customers with. Well, you know, going back to your Lyft analogy or, or Uber analogy, part of the reason that they had such a crystal clear customer experience was that it was an application and they controlled all of the messaging in the application, right? But if you're a B2B company, you don't have that. 
you don't have, you know, an app that the person is on necessarily that you can control the messaging that you know how they're using the app that you're not pulling data from that. Their experience with your company is happening in all of those different channels. Like if you don't have one place of record for that, then it's just too hard to figure out all of the activities that they're even coming close to doing, right? That's absolutely right. Whether it's B2B or B2C, uh, it's happening offline, it's happening online, it's happening across five, six, seven different channels. It's happening with a sales rep over the phone, right? And so being able to get at all of those interactions and use that to orchestrate the right customer journey, to be able to report on it, to understand what happened, and then to do it at scale is a complex task. And that that's you know, really what we're trying to guide folks through. Yeah. So can you talk about 360 audiences? Because this is something that, you know, you can paint the picture in your head, 360 and and audiences is something we know, but there's a lot of stuff under the hood and there's a lot of stuff that is, you know, really cutting edge. Yeah, absolutely. So um, customer 360 audiences is a customer data platform. And really, you know, there are three main aspects to any reputable customer data platform. There's the idea of ingress. So bringing all of your data into the system, integrating all of your different sources of sales, marketing, commerce data, anything that might be useful for personalization and segmentation. Uh, And then you're putting that all into a giant data lake, right? So all of this data is flowing in, in an automated fashion, And on its way in, the system has to normalize it and collapse down to one individual view of each person, right? So if there are 10 different versions of me, Adam Blitzer, coming from 10 different systems, the system has to do either some kind of unique matching or use fuzzy logic to basically condense down to one view of me. And that's kind of the special sauce of these things. Then the marketer is building, you know, kind of rich segments based on the data that's in the CDP. And then that third part is egress or activation out of the CDP into all of your different marketing channels, whether that's your email marketing solution, whether that's audiences being pushed out, you know, to Google for advertising or Facebook, et cetera, going through your SMS channels or your over the top channels. So it's basically bringing all your data in working with it once it's in and pushing it out. And that can all be done automatically, right? Without a marketer, you know, kind of using levers to build segments or activate things out, or it can be done in sort of a more prescriptive sort of campaign style, you know, marketing behind the wheel, adjusting things. That doesn't sound incredibly complicated, but, you know, if you think about the history of this space, companies have been doing this for 20 years. They've just called it something else. It's typically been called like a customer master. And it's been a giant, hairy IT project, you know, owned by the CIO. They've been wiring together lots of different sources of data, uh, most of which have not been really API enabled, you know, in the past, often legacy systems, lots of complexity, um, big ETLing process to try and bring data in and transform it. Then it was still owned by IT. There was no kind of nice interface on top of it. Marketing would have to request from IT, hey, I need a segment of people, you know, that have recently purchased from us and expressed interest in a new product. And they'd set the parameters. And then IT would ship them a file. And then marketing would do something with it. And of course, by the time that happened, 
everything was out of date anyway, right? Or it was too late. And so those systems, which were built on these things like TerraLine and you know other really kind of big data warehousing systems, just didn't wind up being agile enough or useful enough for marketers. You fast forward to today, or really the past few years, you now have data lakes that have become commodities, right? The big cloud vendors, you know, whether that's Microsoft or Amazon or Google or Alibaba or companies like Snowflake um, are delivering these amazing technologies on top of the public cloud that product vendors like us or like our peers can build on top of, build an amazing UI and facade for marketers to finally take advantage of these things. So that's why I think the problem is not new. The solution is very new. Yeah, no, it's totally right. I mean, the, it's kind of like the convergence of, of those technologies to be able to build on top of that. Obviously, you know, you have Snowflake recently uh, IPOing, and there's a reason why they're so popular right now is that, you know, this this sort of fundamental understanding and, and acknowledgement of data being the thing that's going to drive the next decade of change for businesses and making better customer experiences, like we're there, right? Do you think that with 360 audiences, with these customer 360 audiences that, and this kind of like single source of truth, do you think it's kind of like finally the point where marketers will be able to kind of judge all of these different platforms uh, or channels or things that they're using that have notoriously been hard to track, you know, print, things like that, and start to like get a little bit closer towards an understanding of like holistically how they all play together. Because I think that part of the problem is like when you say, hey, what's your ROI on print, right? It's like part of the problem with that is like, well, what what is the holistic look at everything we're doing anyways, right? (laughs) So like, you know, if we're doing a print campaign that's affecting these people, where does it fit into the broader, uh, you know, that center of the chessboard anyways, if you're doing peripheral things? So like, how does that kind of fit into like some of those hard to track ROI things? It certainly still doesn't make things perfect, but I think it gets us a lot closer. There's always going to be some murkiness to marketing, especially to parts of marketing that are not direct response. So if something sort of isn't squarely in the demand gen aspect of marketing or the direct response, you know, if I'm thinking about B2C, the direct response aspect of marketing, it's still going to be complex, right? Like did someone reading, you know, an earned PR article, did that influence their decision to buy? You know, did someone looking at, look at sort of a, you know, a billboard off 101 in the Bay Area, did that influence? I mean, those kinds of things are going to be very, very, very difficult to attribute back to revenue. I think anything in the demand gen realm and in the direct response realm starts to get much, much easier, but not only because of CDP systems, but also because the analytics solutions have just gotten so much better. You know, it used to be, you know, basically the first touch would get all the credit, right? Where did, where did the lead get sourced from? Okay, just give that all the credit for the deal getting done. Then people started to get more sophisticated and say, hey, let's do an even split, right? Everything that affected them, let's apportion out the credit of the sale to all those different channels. Then people started to get more sophisticated and say, hey, let's give more credit to where they first came from. And then maybe what pushed them over the edge, what turned them into an opportunity. And now we're at the point where we're saying, hey, you know, all those models are flawed, right? Maybe that's okay. Like some model is better than no model because you can measure against it, but they're probably all flawed. Let's actually use AI to figure out the best possible model for us. So it takes all the data you have available. Let's actually have it start to figure out 
you know, what actually drove the sale. It looks back at every single possible touch you had at, you know, every single possible lead becoming an opportunity, becoming a sale. That's been really, really interesting. I think we're at the early days of that. You know, we're doing that ourselves. Uh, we have something called Einstein attribution, basically our AI for attribution, figuring that out. But I think a combination between CDP and those sort of next level analytics, specifically tuned for marketing, really make that true comparison between channels much, much easier. Yeah, I was going to ask you about drinking your own uh, cold brew there. So how do you use, you know, Salesforce products to meet those demand gen goals? Uh, You know, you obviously, this digital cloud, you you have so many um, different kind of uh, stakeholders within that. One of the funny things too, which I, I just find is such an emblematic of the times is, you know, that you have B2B and B2C underneath you, which makes so much sense, right? Because B2B needs to take lessons from B2C and vice versa. And like those two things, it makes sense that like Salesforce having both of those things kind of starting to blend together with AI is, is super fascinating. But yeah, how are you drinking the, your own uh, cold brew? Yeah. So, uh, you know, of course we drink a lot of our, that's the first time I've heard that we drink a lot of our own cold brew. Um, I made it up. So or, I just, <laughs> yeah, or eat our own dog food, uh, eat our own dog food, which hopefully no one does, uh, so to speak. Um, you know, I would say first it starts not with technology. It just starts with, you know, our philosophy around how our marketing team works. And our marketing, you know, we talked earlier about marketing needing to have a lot of empathy for sales and marketing being in the trenches with sales. And we're no exception to what I mentioned. If we get to the end of the quarter or the end of the year and marketing had a great, you know, great set of conferences and a great event series and ran great campaigns and we completely missed our sales number, no one at the company would be happy. Literally no one at the company would be happy. We have this growth mindset. And so our marketing team is actually, you know, essentially measured on pipeline that they generate and pipeline that they influence. And that's not, you know, not every single person in marketing is measured on that. If you're in PR, for example, you know, obviously you have, you have kind of different metrics, but the vast majority of the marketing department is, you know, how much pipe did you help generate? How much pipe did you help influence? We don't track them quite all the way to revenue. Um, I think, you know, the, the time lag might be a little bit tough sometimes, but pipeline is really it's where the rubber meets the road between sales and marketing. So I think first, just establishing that you know, is really important for driving the right, right type of mindset. When we do an event, you know, when we do Dreamforce, for example, our, our major users conference, typically that we do in the fall, where you bring, you know, 100,000 plus people to San Francisco, we think about pipe in the room, right? How much pipeline is actually coming to that event? Uh, and then we think about pipe generated, you know, within X amount of days, you know, during or after the event. And that's really what marketing is being measured on. To do that, you know, we, we've had to implement things certainly like multi-touch attribution. So we use our own, obviously our own multi-touch attribution. We're a very typical B2B company in that we have, you know, sometimes long sales cycles, multiple steps in those sales cycles, some digital, some in-person, some involving a sales rep and being able to track that through the entire process to know what is actually influencing a deal so that we can go back and make the right marketing funding decisions is incredibly important. So we use our own analytics, we use our own kind of marketing journeys, you know, when we think about the combination of products that people might buy over their life cycle with us, 
we try to look at their propensity, you know, if they own one product and another based on that combination and their usage pattern, what is their propensity to buy the next product in that series? But as much as possible, we try to be our own, you know, our own best guinea pig for what we think the future of marketing is. And, you know, our customers often when they, you know, want to hear from us, they don't want to hear from our product team, our product marketing team, our sales team. They want to talk to our marketing team and say, how are you guys actually doing this? Um, and so we call this Salesforce on Salesforce sessions. And so our, our marketing team will just geek out with another marketing team about how they do B2B marketing, including, you know, what non-Salesforce products do we use, right? I mentioned, you know, the average marketer is using at least 10 to 20 different pieces of MarTech. We might offer six different pieces of MarTech, right? We have six kind of major pieces of our MarTech stack at Salesforce. You know, that leaves 14 other things we're probably using. Um, and so what, what sort of uh, coalition or collaboration have you put together and how did you do it? How do you think our listeners should view their, their company website? Well, it serves a lot of different purposes. You know, certainly, you know, I think if you're a B2B company, your website is probably your most important lead generation machine or demand generation machine. And companies have taken all kinds of different approaches to it where sort of everything is gated. That used to be the old Salesforce approach. Where that, And by that, by gated, I mean, to sort of do anything, you had to give a little bit of information about who you are. And then all of a sudden you were a lead in the system. And that worked extremely well for us, maybe for 15 years or something, you know, a, a very significant amount of time and just keep, kept feeding the machine. What we found through, you know, a tremendous amount of testing was, you know, we started to get better returns by ungating as many things as possible and just letting people do more and more and more research with us anonymously before they ever wound up giving their information. And then by the time they do give their information, they've essentially gotten to that point where they're very, very close to making the purchase. And we found very high correlations sort of, you know, between the cer certain types of activities that are happening while anonymous to post-conversion actually closing as a deal. So that was an interesting turning point for us, you know, and our whole website had a major, major redesign with that in mind. Of course, there are still certain types of things that we gate, but, you know, I would say we did a 180 in that respect. And so you can never measure enough. You can never test enough, you know, treat your website as an experiment, like a constant, a constant, it's like a laboratory, I guess a laboratory is a better way to put it, where you're running many experiments all the time, because it's one of the few places where you can do it. You own it. Right. Um, and so, you know, treat it as a laboratory. You have enough data flowing through it that you'll be able to draw really strong conclusions. One thing I see, though, with websites that companies don't do enough, that's actually not that hard, is they don't create a, uh, you know, essentially a, an audience of one. Right. Every time someone visits the website, they should have their own unique experience, right, based on what the system knows about them. And it could be something as simple as like, it knows I'm from a tech company when I visit the website and it should just show me and it may, it may, maybe it's the same content, but it's just completely reordered, right? So all the case studies in the client section that sort of float to the top are going to be companies that I've likely heard about, or it knows I'm from an SMB instead of an enterprise. And so it kind of rearranges things. Those things are not very difficult to do, but it just takes thinking about your website differently, it, like thinking about it as kind of this living dynamic entity where you don't need uniformity, 
it's okay for it to seem different to every single person that visits. Uh, and again, everything is measurable. So if it's not working, you'll know right away. Let's get into the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is our next segment where you can open up a playbook. And I would love for you to say, what is one play or channel or tactic or something that you're really excited about for the future that you think people are going to be uh, going to be using to some degree of, uh, of success? So I think, um, you know, the first play, uh, I would just go back to what I was talking about of the website of one. I would bet that very few companies are doing this, but where they just look at their website as, you know, it's this, it's this real estate that they own that is 100% dynamic, right? You know, you have kind of these design elements and broad content areas, but the content that is appearing is just hyper relevant to whoever your visitor is. And it could be that, you know, almost thing about something when they first hit your site, you know, you might know basically their geography, where they're coming from, that sort of thing. And so they sort of see one thing. By the second time they come back, it should feel different, right? It should feel different based on the type of content that they've already viewed, based on the kind of affinities that you were able to detect based on, you know, their patterns with you. But basically, I think that that website of one idea is easier to do than people think it is. And I, I just think the website of the future is hyper relevant to each individual visitor. And you're playing often, especially if you're a larger company, you're playing with such large numbers in terms of your traffic that you'll understand these things very quickly if they're effective or not. And any small marginal improvement in your conversions is going to be significant. Um, and so why, why wouldn't you do this? Okay, our next segment is the dust up. Uh-oh, here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust-up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. This is about healthy tension. So whether that was with sales, your board, a competitor, or somebody else entirely, have you had a memorable dust-up in your career? Ooh, you know, I used to do judo competitively, so I've had many dust-ups, you know, in, in the on the personal side of things. I think the biggest dust up I had uh, was with my co-founder, David Cummings, when we were approached by Exact Target for an acquisition. I wanted to sell the company and David did not want to sell the company. And, uh, you know, your company is sort of not worth anything until someone wants to buy it. And so we, you know, we just didn't think about these things as founders. And we'd been running the business for about five years and then all of a sudden, when real money is getting thrown around, it gets very real. And so for the two of us who were quite close as founders, it was really interesting to all of a sudden be at that impasse. You know, both of us had a lot of our identity wrapped up in the business. Like it was, it was one of the few startups in Atlanta at the time. We built something really great, a great place to work. You know, and David thought, hey, why would we sell it now, right? If we wait a year, we could sell it for twice as much. And I thought it was really important to land the company with a company that would take care of it. And, you know, reading Exact Target's S1 when they went public, you know, they listed corporate culture as a competitive differentiator, which is, you know, extremely rare to read, especially at that time. Uh, if you've ever met Scott Dorsey, one of their co-founders and CEO, he's like the nicest person on the planet. And so you can you could feel that he was going to do everything he said he would. And so I thought, 
you know, maybe we could sell it for twice as much, but we're not going to land it in nearly as good of a spot for the company or our teammates. Um, and so we agreed. We said, hey, if as we're negotiating, if the number gets to a certain point, we'll sell it. And then the number got to that point and we still disagreed. So it was it was pretty amazing. And eventually we got to the point where the, you know, the terms were really, really good for all all sides. And my co-founder said, whoa, okay, let's sell this thing. And, uh, you know, if it weren't for him kind of pushing back, we would have sold it probably for significantly less than we wound up selling it for. And so that was the, uh, again, like you can imagine, again, your company's not worth anything until someone wants to buy it. And then all of a sudden it is. But you can imagine how tense that was to have two founders who wanted to do completely opposite things, maybe for the first time in their whole relationship as co-founders, but it was about the most major decision you could possibly make. So that was pretty interesting. It had a really, really obviously positive ending, but a very tense three weeks. What a desktop. And a f- one of my favorite stories about Pardot is, uh, is that you kept legacy customers for like years and years and years. It's like the coolest thing. Yeah, we, um, you know, you thought, well, when we first started the company, we said, hey, let's, uh, you know, let's sell this thing for $150 a month not $150 per user per month, $150 a month. We quickly realized marketing automation was more valuable than that. But, you know, to those first, you know, 10, 20 customers who paid us that, we kept them on that, right? They trusted us in the early days. And, you know, we raised our price and raised our price and raised our price. And eventually, you know, as a a private company hit that sweet spot of $1,000 a month, you know, your customers are on that ride with you. They trust you. They're, They're your early evangelists. And so, you know, just, just let it ride and, and keep them where they are. Okay, last segment here are quick hits. These are quick questions, quick answers. Just like how quickly you can talk to someone on your website with Qualified.com. Qualified prospects are on your website right now. And you can go talk to them with Qualified.com. Quick and easy, just like these questions. Quick and easy, just like Qualified.com. Quick hits, Adam, are you ready? Let's do it. Number one, what's the biggest person that you ever threw in judo? Oh, I think I threw a 300 pounder in my day. So I'm about 150. That took some doing, but luckily physics was on my side. <laughs> it's a, uh, your ally is the force and your ally is physics. Those are two good, the strongest allies you can have. That's right. Did you start doing something in shelter in place that you didn't used to do? I would say one bad thing, one good thing. I started eating a lot of flaming Hot Cheetos. I think just because I could. Uh, so that was the bad thing. But on the good side, I work out a lot more. You know, obviously, I'm not going to the gym, but I don't have a commute. So uh, I'm able to sort of hit, hit the gym around the house. Something you're excited about for 2021? I'm excited about it not being 2020. Just in general, I'm excited about the consumer experiences that are being created right now by necessity. All these businesses that were digital second coming into the pandemic are digital only right now by necessity, but as they come out, they're going to be digital first. And, you know, the, the amount of kind of innovation that's happening right now is just going to be enduring as we come out of it. So I'm excited to see how all that plays out and, uh, you know, enjoy it as a consumer, but also on the business side, get to work on it, you know, in terms of products. As a great grandfather of, uh, of marketing automation, as, uh, do you have any, any, any wishes for your great-grandchild uh, as, they, as they continue to grow up here? I think my, yeah, my wish for my great-grandchild is don't, don't overcomplicate things. So we talked about, you know, as these technologies get more and more powerful, there's so much you could do, 
right? And it and it it's easy to overcomplicate things. So my wish for people working on marketing technologies is always try to rotate back to simplicity when you can. Remember at the at the end of your product is a human being using it. And so even if you have flexibility and complexity and complexity built in, hide it, right? Make it as simple as possible. Have, you know, defaults that work for 80% of your customers. Similarly for marketers, right? Don't overcomplicate things. Start small and iterate. Put a stake in the ground, test it, iterate. You don't have to do everything at once. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining. That's it. That's all we got for today. Uh, Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? No, awesome. Thanks so much for having me. And look, I know everybody is stressed. This is an insane year. Um, And just remember, you know, marketing, work, it's important. It's not a top five thing in your life, right? Take care of yourself, take care of your family, take care of your neighbors and those around you. Uh, And we have plenty of time uh, to do all this other stuff later. Agreed. Take care. Thanks a lot. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.